Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. It's me, Sarah Ivory. Today, we give praise to the lowly peddler. Pack peddlers, also known as smooths, ambulantes, and cloppers, are a staple of Jewish family lore, not just here in the United States, but throughout the Americas, Australia, South Africa, basically anywhere Jews headed when they left the places they left. But the specifics of that profession and the impact it had on Jews' success or failure in their new homelands has not been much considered, which is why we're very excited today that the esteemed historian Hasya Diner has taken on this topic in a new book. We have a great conversation with her coming up, but first, we're continuing with our new experiment, which for now we're going to call The Vox Beat, at the suggestion of one very loyal listener, Sheldon Benjamin. If you grew up Jewish in suburban Detroit, you know what Joe Cornell is. Every fall, hundreds of sixth graders embark on the Entertainment Center's 12-week dance class to get them ready for a full season of bar and bat mitzvahs. Zach Rosen has been following the progress of two Joe Cornell students as they make their way through the program. Do you hear me? Do you copy? Zach, do you copy? Sorry, I've been sitting in school all day. We're at my house, and I'm Ryan. And I'm Dylan. And we're eating pigs in a blanket, but fancy pigs in a blanket. Parmesan pastry pops, Dylan. Get it right. (laughs) And we're going to go to Joe Cornell in a couple minutes. We're going to see what it's all about, because this is the first time. So what do you think the point of Joe Cornell is? So you can kind of get the feel of what bar mitzvahs are going, bar and bat mitzvahs are going to be like, and you're not totally lost when you get there. It's sort of about like growing up. Like you're gonna have to ask a girl to dance with you at some point in your life. You need to be able to do that too. I think they're gonna ask you to to pick a random girl. Oh really? But I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm just guessing. <laughs> but but then that would that would mean that. Lots of people are going to pick girls they know and just pretend like they're random because who would want to be with a yeah, random I'm, girl? I'm not, like, I'm not dancing the, if, with a random if they person. Wanted, if they wanted it to be random, then they would pick it for you. Yeah, yeah. if they wanted it to be and random, I, they would pick it for you. Yeah. Because like, I'm not going to dance with someone I don't know because I don't really even want to dance with people I do know. That, that would be really weird. Dancing. Well, it's not even weird dancing. It's weird asking. Oh, this is weird. Would you like to dance? Take his hand, take his hand. Oh, your mom was picking this up? Hi. Hi. What did you guys do? Did you... We, we danced. We actually learned a new um, dance like that. I hope to. The box step. Whatever. Yeah. And what's the box step? You take a step forward. Just exactly and a step what's to the right, and then a step backward, and then a step to Little the left. Little boys do, girls don't. Oh wait. oh, wait. I'm messing this up. Okay, I'm ready. Very good. You look like you'd rather be dead than doing this. I know I asked you before, but why do you think uh, you were you were there tonight? What's the point of this all? As it may be uncomfortable, it's still teaching us. Like we're gonna need the skill in our adulthood, 
if we are going to have a wife. Like, you, they're teaching us, like, pretty much how to ask a girl out. Like, my mom met my dad. He, she hadn't known him until that one day, and then she's like, oh, my God, I need to meet this guy. So, like, if we see a random person who we think is, is like, cool, we have to, like, we have to know how to walk up to someone and ask them to dance if we've never met them. That's sort of what we're doing. Girls, you take your left hand, put it up on his shoulder. And that opens the door, boys. You can take your right hand and put it all the way around on her back. This is the upper back. It's that chicken wing thing. That, yes. What's that called? Scapula. I'm scared. Is that a scapula? Scapula. Jack, this is the end. Yes. Okay, so scapula. That's the chicken wing Why am I so emotional? No, it's not a good look in some self-control. Deep down, I know this never works. But you can lay with me so it doesn't hurt. Oh, won't you? Zach Rosen is an independent producer. He's based in Detroit. He's working on a longer story following Dylan and Ryan's rite of passage as well as recalling his own. Rosen and his buddies attended Joe Cornell back in 1996 and keep an ear out for the longer story. Now then, peddlers. Just today, we asked our tablet readers if anybody had peddlers in their family history and what did they know about them. Within an hour, we had 40 replies. Our very own producer, Julie Subrin, found out today, this morning, that her father's grandfather, that is, her great-grandfather, was a peddler in Akron, Ohio. He traveled around with a horse and wagon, collecting and reselling rags. He was apparently a charitable man, and he drank a little bit too much. These are the kinds of peddler stories that get passed down through the generations, but when it comes to the nitty-gritty, to the details of our peddling heritage, things get much murkier. What exactly did it mean day-to-day to be a peddler? Who supplied them with their goods? Were these religious people? Where did they take their meals? Where did they sleep when they were on the roads? Did they have families? Was this profession lucrative? In her new book called Roads Taken, The Great Jewish Migrations to the New World and the Peddlers Who Forged the Way, Hasya Diner sets out to answer these questions. She also tackles much bigger questions about how peddling impacted Jews' entry into the societies to which they emigrated. We are delighted to be speaking with Hasya Diner today about all of this in her home in Greenwich Village. Hasya, welcome to Box Tablet. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Before we get started, let's define our terms. What exactly is a peddler? Okay, so a peddler, which comes from the old French word for foot, uh, literally means somebody who goes by foot. And um, while the word peddler is often used to describe somebody who had a stationary cart on the street, okay, rag peddler or the pushcart peddler, um, I am focusing on those people who went out, did two things went out on the road, that is, they didn't necessarily come back, in fact, usually did not come back to a home, to their own home at the end of the day, but tromped the roads uh, going from home to home, uh, trying to sell, 
And um, secondly, uh, the peddlers uh, who I'm dealing with were people who crossed the thresholds of their customers' homes. And as such, they entered into the world of their customers or the worlds of their customers and um, had to find a vocabulary uh, by which to uh, communicate with them, uh, establish a personal relationship. And out of that communication and personal relationship, they uh, hoped to sell something. What kinds of things did they hope to sell? What, what were they marketing? So peddlers, uh, almost every place they went, in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say every place they went, um, sold a category of good that we would say, one, one, one writer has described it as populux. That is, uh, these were luxuries, but luxuries for a very poor clientele. So um, they never, by the way, sold food. Mm-hmm. They didn't sell fuel. Mm-hmm. That is, they didn't sell the necessities of life, but they sold ribbon, lace, needles, thread, cloth, tablecloths, sheets and pillowcases, eyeglasses, um, neckties, handkerchiefs, uh, suspenders, uh, pictures from the wall, for, you know, to put on the wall, picture frames, uh, mirrors, jewelry, watches, very commonly. Uh, when they graduated to a uh, horse and wagon, or could be donkey wagon or oxen wagon, depending on where they were, they started to carry somewhat larger goods. So they could carry a stove. Okay. Or um, some pieces of uh, often used furniture, furniture that had been rehabilitated. But either way, it was, stu- it was the kind of good that we would say, like, I couldn't live without a sheet and pillowcase right. or a blanket. Um, or what would I do without my glasses? Okay. Uh, but for the customers who were buying, whose homes the peddlers came into it, these were new items or they were um, items that uh, heretofore they associated only with the better off class uh, having. And um, the peddler made it possible for them to have it also. What's the period specifically that you're looking at in terms of these peddlers? Right. So I begin in the uh, late 18th century, the 1770s, 1780s, when um, um, there's a fairly substantial contingent of Polish Jews who go to England uh, and make their way uh, in pretty large number through the uh, English countryside to the provincial towns and the area around them. And it goes from then well into the 1920s when mass immigration comes to an end. And um, that's almost a, a kind of arbitrary ending because I could have continued into the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, many um, German-Jewish refugees who come to parts of Latin America and uh, the Caribbean get their start peddling. I was sort of overwhelmed by the amount of material I had. And so I said, okay, I'm going to kind of end this with um, – Basically, the uh, imposition of immigration restriction in the United States, which really brought the great migration uh, to an end and uh, ushered in smaller migrations. You do look primarily at peddlers in the United States, but you also do take into account examples elsewhere in the world. How did peddlers end up, say, in Cuba or South Africa? So peddlers go, and it's hard for us, and it's really hard for me, even having worked on this, to imagine the flow of information, you know, how information 
got, you know, from Australia after the gold at the time of the gold rush, um, back to a particular town in in Lithuania. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but uh, the peddlers followed news of the opening up of areas uh, where people were coming in, and that word rush really tells us what it was, and these are people who now have access to cash, okay, so that when the gold rush begins, or the diamond rush, or the uh, opening up of coal mines, um, it means that they're going to be in a relatively concentrated uh, place, increasing, constantly growing numbers of people who get wages. And if they get wages, that means... They can buy stuff. And so in much of Latin America and the Caribbean, um, when the plantation system comes into being, and so people are not working so much as um, landless peasants, but rather are working for wages on plantations, the peddlers come in because those wages can now go to, okay, uh, Cuban uh, sugar plantation workers um, whose wives think they ought to have um, uh, neckties and suspenders. Um, so it's like that, those moments of development, uh, uh, and it could be a development around a natural resource or a new form of um, uh, agricultural development, but there have to be enough people there with enough extra cash to be able to buy these things that they theoretically don't need. Tell us about the daily life of a peddler, what their week was like, but also where did peddling fit in the lifetime of an immigrant? Was it something they would have only done in the beginning when they arrived, or was it sort of a lifetime profession? Okay, so peddling was a stage in an immigrant's life. Okay, to be a peddler meant to be a relatively new immigrant. And while it's <clears throat> not possible to really compute and say the average was 15.8 months, I mean, mm -hmm. some people were less successful and did it for longer. Other people did phenomenally, and you know, within a year they have a shop um, of some kind or another. But it was still it was temporary, and uh, just as significant, or possibly more significant, is their children never went into this occupation. It was really a uh, uh, entry wedge into a new society and a new economy. So it was um, how one got launched. Okay, it was the first steps, literally, uh, into the uh, the new community or the new the new um, uh, region, and uh, in terms of uh, their, their sort of day to day life, the kind of quotidian part of it. What's important is that wherever they went, they functioned along a weekly cycle. Okay, and so if you begin at the beginning of the week um, on. Um, Sunday, um, they would set out on the road. Now, de depending on when we're talking about this technologically, they might just walk to their route or they might get a ride on somebody's horse and wagon. Uh, but as canals, uh, railroads uh, become uh, uh, planted in a region, they could take the train out to their territory. Uh, they'll do that on Sunday and then they start their cycle on uh, Monday, and uh, they sold on the installment plan, which meant they had a reason to go back to uh, homes uh, uh, every week to collect payment for what they bought, the uh, what had been bought the week before, 
And uh, Fridays, um, they would return to whatever was the closest hub of Jewish life. And um, while we might want to say, well, they came to observe the Sabbath, maybe they did. Uh, but more importantly, they came because particularly if they're pack peddlers, they can only carry a certain amount. And so they have a week's worth of stuff on their back. But um, they would, um, on Saturday night, um, all around the world, um, uh, they would uh, pay back their suppliers. They would replenish their packs. Okay, and then the next morning, head out again for their territory. Um, when peddlers might um, graduate from selling by foot um, to having a horse and cart or some other draft animal in a cart, they actually could slightly modify their um, uh, business activities because as they would go around the countryside, they would not only be selling off their stuff, Okay, but they would enter into relationships with the uh, – they sold to, almost exclusively to women. Okay, they would enter into relationships with the women, which is the during the week the women would collect stuff for them, herbs, a lot of ginseng sellers, which is really interesting, uh, but also um, feathers or old bone, you know, bones, rags, uh, scraps of paper – tin or other pieces of metal. So the peddlers would buy this from the women. Okay, you can see why this gives the women a really terrific uh, uh, edge on, on their lives because now they have a source of income. Mm-hmm. They haven't had to go off and work in some textile mill. They'd stay home and collect stuff. And, um, and sometimes the peddlers would pay the women for this or they would um, offer them merchandise. Mm -hmm. And then when they would come back to this hub, this uh, sort of uh, town, they would not only pay back their creditors, fill up their bags for the following week, but they'd also sell the stuff they had collected or that the women had collected for them to junk shops. And that was sort of a real Jewish metier as well. So if they're out on the road uh, for those uh, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and so on, you know, the obvious question is where did they sleep? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and what they eat. And so they tended to now, certainly sometimes they had to sleep on the ground in a forest, in a field. Um, but the ideal, and it seems to have been observed more than not, is that they slept in a customer's home. And um, uh, that, when I was working on on this, was really one of the most revealing um, uh, moments for me that um, they would uh, ask, you know, the a, a customer you know, may I lodge here for the night? And so since they had this set cycle, they'd know Monday night it was at this person's home and Tuesday night at this person's. And they would, in fact, talk about how they tried to manipulate their schedule so that the last customer was always the nicest. Mm-hmm. And that's the person whose home they slept at. Did they pay for this lodging? So sometimes they paid. Sometimes they offered the family uh, goods from their sack. And um, so in terms of thinking about the uh, larger significance of this really humdrum occupation um, is that they from, I don't know, let's say they ended their day at, let's make it at 6 o'clock at night, that meant from 6 until whenever people went to bed or 5, they had to have conversation yeah. with people who were total strangers to them. And um, certainly it helped the, the peddlers really uh, uh, sharpen their linguistic skills. Okay, they had to learn, you know, so they, they couldn't not learn the language. And um, 
it really struck me working on this that as an occupation, it had this really uh, significant um, uh, implication of uh, fostering Jewish integration into these places. And um, their co-immigrants, let's say the people from the same town in Poland or Lithuania or wherever, who stayed in the city went to work in a garment factory, which was another option, lived in an all-Yiddish-speaking environment or, uh, you know, didn't have that exposure to sitting around, you know, the fireplace with a family in Iowa and um, talking about the weather or the crops mm-hmm. or their children or the news or, I don't whatever it is people uh, would talk about. Well, let me ask you, what uh, was the nature of these conversations and how did peddlers figure out... Uh, what was the cultural currency in order to not just go into the person's home, but to pass those few hours before bedtime? How did he know what to talk about? I saw these peddlers as actually brilliant amateur anthropologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they figured out, you know, how to communicate with people who were so different. They never sold to Jews. And in many places, particularly in societies that were very devoutly Protestant, uh, one of the uh, topics that was very um, easily talked about and very um, uh, very much a kind of common ground was the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so um, the uh, when, once it was established that the peddler was Jewish, and this often came up over the food issue, the... Um, uh, family uh, whose home they were in, again, this happened in South Africa, it happened in Australia, it happened throughout the United States, would say, well, you're one of the chosen people. He said, would you like to read the Bible with us? And um, tell us, you know, how, you know, what this, what this means to you. And so that's kind of like opener, right? A, mm-hmm. You know, sort of a way of... Um, icebreaker. Yeah, a real icebreaker. <laughs> and as was the food issue, because if they're sleeping over, then the um, um, housewife, I never saw an example where the man was the one who talked about food, would say, well, you know, would you like to eat with us? And, you know, these were places where people ate things that Jews didn't eat. And um, the ones who came to the United States commented a lot, you know, this is like a swine-eating nation, <laughs> and, uh, and those are going to the American South, which was you know, very much honeycombed by um, uh, Jewish peddlers, say like there was nothing on the table that didn't have pork in it. And so some of the um, peddlers where we hear their uh, words said, you know, um, I just, you know, I was so hungry. I had been out on the road for 10 hours carrying you know, like 150 pounds on my back, and I'm going to eat anything and everything because I just, I'm going to do it. And some of them were probably th- maybe have been thrilled, like, okay, now I can have all this stuff I couldn't have before. Um, other peddlers uh, say to the um, housewife, you know, thank you, but I, I, can, I can't eat that food, which um, elicited the most obvious question from the housewife, which is, why not? Right. And they say, well, you know, I'm um, I'm I'm Jewish, and uh, we're not allowed to eat this food. And while it seems like it could be a recipe for um, hostility and for uh, demonizing the Jews, what you're too good to eat our food, rather the opposite. And the housewives say, 
tell me what you can eat and I'll make it for you. Um, in some cases, peddlers described leaving a pot in each home. And when they came, the woman would either cook in that pot, something for them in that pot, or the peddler would prepare his own food. And um, I'd say this is probably an early example of um, ecumenical interfaith activity um, without any prompting from any national conference of Christians and Jews, you know, or you know, without any uh, seminaries, you know, in, you know, instructing people in um, interfaith education, it just took place, and um, so that um, transformative impact of uh, this occupation so ordinary that no other historian has ever thought it was worth even commenting on, uh, uh, it seems to me really significant. In addition to uh, crossing religious barriers, you discuss in the book the fact that a lot of times these peddlers had to cross racial barriers. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so wherever the peddlers went, uh, there there was a heterogeneous population. Um, There were uh, those peddlers who go to sell, let's say, in Ireland, are selling to Catholics and Protestants. Or those peddlers who are going to uh, Maine or to Quebec are selling to French speakers and English speakers, Catholics and Protestants. So um, every place, in a way, had these... Uh, uh, sort of pockets of, of, of difference. Now, this becomes really significant when we're talking about places like the American South, okay, uh, where uh, the peddlers are selling to African-American customers and they're selling to white customers. And so uh, the peddler, uh, first again, has to learn what's the etiquette when you go into a white home versus the etiquette within uh, an African-American home. On the logic that if you break the uh, the etiquette, if you transgress, they're not going to buy from you. And so in the narratives about particularly selling to African-American customers, the peddlers talked about how they knew it was important as a white man going into a home to sell to a black woman that they had to be hyper-courteous. And they had to doff their cap and extend a kind of respect that that woman would never get if she went into town to try to buy something. So he's ingratiating himself to her by acting like no other white man would act towards her. Now, his motivation was not, you know, anticipatory of the civil rights movement. His his motivation was to make a sale. One comment which was made at the time was that uh, these Jewish peddlers were the only people who went in and out of white and and black homes with ease. And um, this is replicated elsewhere. You know, in the Southwest, they sold to Mexicans and to Anglos, you know, to Spanish speakers and to Anglos. They sold on Indian reservations. Uh, in fact, it's, you know, a uh, oft-quoted statement that the Cherokee used to refer to the um, peddlers as um, egg eaters because they, all they would eat would be um, eggs cooked in their shells. And so they, that's how they referred to them, because they didn't have the word Jew in their vocabulary, um, so they were the egg eaters. Um, so while these were barriers um, that, in, 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 in a way, in the real world, mattered a great deal, to the peddler, there was a certain benefit in being able to just uh, traverse them. And what about gender barriers? So the peddlers sell to women, Okay, they're selling during the day and the men are off working. And uh, there's a kind of alliance that developed between the peddlers and the women. Now, sometimes the peddlers, as I said before, 
recruit women to uh, um, scavenger for them. And so that means just the woman's economic status or economic profile, her independent profile, mm-hmm. is enhanced. I mean, she now has money she can put under her pillow. Right. Um, and her husband, by the way, doesn't necessarily know about it. Okay, um, so uh, uh, it, it enhances her status. Um, many of the women um, uh, would buy particularly jewelry, and um, it was a kind of safety valve for them or a little nest egg because they could pawn the jewelry when times got bad. And so that, again, is put some economic power in the hands of uh, women. And I think about women doing this in places like um, coal mining towns and uh, plantations where the women aren't necessarily employed. They mm-hmm. don't have any way of making uh, you know, making money on their own. The peddler serves as a conduit to um, their economic enhancement. Did these peddlers experience much anti-Semitism? No. <laughs> and so it's very interesting. There were a number of oral history projects, and I looked through the transcripts. And so there was always an interviewer, and this is you know, like in the 70s and 80s, and these were often, you know, really earnest, you know, volunteers from like the local federation of Atlanta or whatever. <laughs> and so they asked him, you know, so tell me about the anti-Semitism you met. And they'd say, you know, actually, I really didn't. I said, I, you know, I got robbed, but I wasn't robbed because I was a Jew. I was robbed because I was a man on the road with cash and with valuable goods, okay? But people were really nice, and uh, they treated me so well. And one person told a story that he knocked on a door. This is in the South. Knocks on a door, and the woman very nastily says, I don't let Yankees into my house. And he says, I'm not a Yankee. I'm a Jew. He said, oh, that's okay. You can come <laughs> in. And now, which uh, doesn't mean that there wasn't anti-peddler activity, and that anti-peddler activity didn't take on anti-Jewish uh, kind of penumbra, uh, but their relationships with their customers seem to have been unaffected by the uh, uh, by anti-Semitism or the religious, racial, linguistic divide, but rather those differences actually seem to be uh, uh, ways in which they um, mutually learn from each other. In some ways. What you're describing sounds like a kind of enviable and almost romantic existence. I mean, you're on the road, you're meeting all these people, you get to talk about your your background and learn about their background, you make a little money, maybe you get a shop eventually. There must have been downsides to this Oh, well, the downside is that they were carrying 150 pounds on their backs and it was raining and snowing or uh, uh, South Africa, it's, you know, 110 degrees outside or Cuba uh, or Costa Rica, it's also... 100% humidity, and they're walking, and there are wild animals, uh, and um, that's pretty tough, and they do get robbed, and um, one of my best um, sort of troves of material came from the murder of peddlers, and they often, and I don't say they often got murdered, but there were enough peddler murders and again, not because um, was because they were Jews, um, but the peddler murders tended to leave fairly extensive paper trails, which uh, helped. And so obviously it was a really risky occupation. And, um, you know, we kind of have this, I don't know, we shouldn't have this image of, you know, somebody, you know, whistling as they walk down the road. I mean, they were miserable and they hated it. And um, uh, there was a man named Abraham Cohn who came from... Um, Bavaria in the 1850s, and he wrote a memoir, he wrote a diary, and he says, oh, youth of Bavaria, stay home. 
I mean, tramping on these roads, the people are ill-mannered, uh, it's miserable, it's not worth it. Well, the money you make is not worth it, even though he eventually has an amazing experience and has uh, triumphs um, in, 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 you know, in, in just really impressively, but when he's doing it, and here I am walking these roads. The snowdrifts are up to my waist. So, I mean, there was certainly lots of downsides to it. Um, but it was a matter, I think, of um, perseverance. And, uh, you know, if somebody could kind of persevere, and there were lots of uh, material on people who tried to pedal and said, look, I failed. I wasn't good at it. I hated it. Okay, uh, uh, but those people who you know stuck with it, um, you know, by and large, ended their lives at a much more comfortable um, status than they had started. Hasid Diner, thank you so much for speaking with us. Okay, my pleasure. Hasid Diner is a professor of American Jewish history and the director of the Goldstein Gorin Center for American Jewish History at New York University. Her new book is called Roads Taken, The Great Jewish Migrations of the New World and the Peddlers Who Forged the Way. It's just out from Yale University Press. What about you, dear listeners? Do you have a past peddling history in your family we want to know what it is send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or go ahead and post a comment on our website tabletmag.com vox tablet is produced by julie subrin i'm your host sarah Avery. as ever we thank you for listening and we hope you'll come back again